0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric, again on Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Christopher Lloyd. However, quickly, before we get to the show, next week we are celebrating our 75th episode with another of the big films on the list, The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Bert Laird. You won't want to miss that one, so check it out on realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, before we get to the regular part of the show, Dad, it's been six weeks since it was just you and I. (laughs) Yeah. Did you think you'd kind of like get to a point where it was weird that it was just the two of us? Um. It, it's always weird when it's just the two of us. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm so glad our valuable time together. <laughs> uh. So, this is actually a revisit of an episode. It's one of only three, by my count, that you were not a part of. You were not on this one, Pulp Fiction, or the Ferris Bueller's Day Off episode. Although, we did originally record one Ferris Bueller, and then I left you out of the revisit of the original, because... I think I described it on that episode. You're less than enthusiastic about John Hughes films.
1: Yes, and did we not do the artist? I thought you and Sarah. did Oh, the that's artist. right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, we had held on in. to that one. Real for... enthusiastic about the artist because I really liked that. It was the
0: best silent film of the 21st century. So I guess the the best place to start with this one. If fans of the show will remember back to episode 16 then, this is our revisit of Back to the Future previously. We had on my Uncle Alex and his friends to discuss this because it is his favorite movie. But uh, regardless, you chose this movie to revisit, so if I may simply ask, why this one? Well, it's
1: near the top of our list, and while it's good, this isn't even close to uh, the best film that. Spielberg's even produced, let alone directed. So I just thought that the numbers were a little too high.
0: I would venture to say it's not the best Robert Zemeckis film that I believe exists. Uh, Agreed. So currently, it would probably be, by most people's account, an outlier in our top 10. Just going from number 10, we have Jaws, number nine, Groundhog Day, number eight, Jurassic Park, as of last week, Number seven, Pulp Fiction. Six, Casablanca. Five, The Best Years of Our Lives. Four, Back to the Future. Three, High Noon. Two, All the President's Men. And number one is 12 Angry Men yet from the beginning of the season. I feel it's going to be pretty difficult for somebody to top 12 Angry Men for a while.
1: Let's just put it this way. Reach back into your your juvenile years. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong.
0: Flatness aside. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I think there's a quite clear notion that I, I don't think anyone would consider. While Back to the Future is a great film, the, let's say, latent favoritism of two people versus one in that episode, or I think three people to one, overly overrating the the strong categories. And this was still early on in the show. So I think part of the reason we have talked about doing revisits is the categories have simply changed in the course of the show. I think we've added stuff to the show or thought about things differently, even in the course of doing the season this year. I know from even doing 12 Angry Men, we've we've developed new nuances on the categories. And so occasionally... I think there will be films that we'll want to revisit coming up that we're just going to think differently about. So next week is our Wizard of Oz episode. Then we have another guest coming on the following week for a revisit of Jaws. I'm already thinking there are several different categorical differences from where it was scored originally to where the revisit is and where it might come down in that. I'm a little bit higher in some. I'm a little bit lower in at least one category I think of. So, it's just going to be interesting to see where things fall. I know we also have a planned revisit for the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark in August, so a little over a month away. So, as we kind of go through this, this being the first time we're revisiting a film, bear with us, folks, because we're just kind of making this up in the initial version of it. So, this is kind of new, and we're going to make it close to redoing the show a little bit, especially since Dana wasn't here for the original. We're going to provide you with as much context, but frankly, I think a lot of people are familiar, at least with the general premise of Back to the Future and who's in it, how it, how it went. But we're going to eliminate certain pieces of the normal show in order to do this. So let's just set up some of the ground rules we kind of came up with. Number one, the revisit has to be requested either by a guest The fans at large, so we have to have a couple of votes into the email. So if you think of uh, a movie from season one that you think we didn't do correctly, please email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. It has to be from a season prior to the one that we're doing. So none of the movies in season two can yet be revisited. But the minute that we get to the end of season two, which usually we just camp it at the calendar years, then we'll get into season three and we can nominate new ones just because we want to provide some separation from a film before we come back and kind of take a new look at it. Or it has to be nominated as a revisit by one of us. Some of the films that just off the top of my head, I think are probably a little bit too low Zodiac inglorious bastards, uh, North by Northwest. I think some of those are a little too low on, on the general list, but Some of them, we don't know. I mean, we've got a really good string of movies right now with the 73 I'm looking at on the list, and there aren't too many that just stick out like a sore thumb to me that are either uh, too low or too high. I gave you about four of them there. But I think for the most part, a lot of these films ends up being pretty accurate to where they should be.
1: You mentioned uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if you saw, but they announced... The working title for the next Raiders today. Oh, they did? Yes, Indiana Jones and the Quest for Social Security. Retirement. (laughs) Uh, He's 70, like
0: 76 years old. I understand, but even for you, like, that's low-hanging fruit. (laughs) And he also has low-hanging fruit. Oh, there you go. Anyway... So let's get into the movie then a little bit, unless there there's something I missed before.
1: Nope.
0: All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to set up more ground rules as we kind of go along, but we didn't get this on the front end. I think I've remembered at one time or another you mentioning to, this to me that you had seen this movie in theaters. I guess what then is your relationship to this movie? I saw it in a theater.
1: I went and saw it. I really liked it. I thought it looked good. I thought it would be fun. I went with my friend, Eric Stoner. I said, uh, first of all, the music, Huey Lewis and the News, that was just coming off of their huge mega album, Sports. So the music was great as the introduction. And then, of course, I pointed to Eric and said, the uh, teacher with the megaphone for the uh, talent show was Huey Lewis. And Eric said, no, it's not. And um, I never did collect the beer that I bet him. For being right but if he happens to ever listen to the podcast and he catches this one he owes me a beer well i'm sure you could
0: send him the link on facebook probably anyway so let, let's give a little bit of context since i was not around at the time michael j fox was on is it family ties correct and that show was very popular Well, I think it was one of, what, three or four multi-cam sitcoms that kind of ruled the 80s. Uh, Cheers, that, The Cosby Show, and maybe like one other one that I'm probably drawing blank on. Well, Cosby led off Thursday nights at 7. And then Family Ties
1: was at 7.30, which was followed by Cheers at 8. And then they had different shows that they tried to work on and fill in the spot. At 8.30, ultimately, they ended up moving Family Ties to another night because they were trying to open that up and develop shows following Cosby because of the lead-in. So Family Ties moved off of Thursdays. But it was a hugely popular show, and um, Michael J. Fox really made the show. It was originally supposed to be more about the parents. Oh, and I cannot remember. Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter Bernie. Uh, At the time, now I'm just Meredith Baxter, but it was soon obvious that if the show was going to be successful, it was going to be geared around pro finance Reaganite, uh, Michael J. Fox to the hippie parents. And uh, it kind of became a a mantra for a whole group of uh, enterprising pro Reaganite types who went into finance and all this. So it was a big show.
0: Well, and I think with the success and popularity of this movie, because it's one of the few that ended up being big from 1985, then you talk about some of the sequels. I don't know if his star was peaking at any higher point than right about now in this mid to late 80s. This this film, and then he did a
1: few others, and Teen Wolf, uh, most people do not remember, but he had a, a, a rather significant part as an assistant in The American President by Rob Reiner. Yeah, but that's like 10 years later. Yeah, at that point in time, it was kind of whether he was going to be a movie or more of a TV actor. And then um, he ended up doing more on television again where he did Spin City, which became popular when it started. And then obviously because of his health problems, he ended up having to take a step back. And his career, he's tried to work, but obviously the... Health issues have uh, kind of uh, limited him and his ability to work.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it would be incredibly difficult to work with his uh, quite famous at this point Parkinson's.
1: Yeah. Well, and I know for a fact, because I saw him do an interview with, uh, why am I drawing a blank, but from uh, uh, inside the actor's studio, James Lipton with James Lipton. And even then, he had to take extra medication because just being out on stage caused his medication to wear off quicker than a normal. And so he had to take had to take a break, take more medication in order to finish the interview. So, and that was well into uh, the period of time that he had even stepped aside from uh, Spin City. So, so that was probably
0: what mid two thousands then, and we're far yeah probably beyond that at this point. Which is unfortunate, given the level of charisma he just imbued on screen. Like, he's very easy to like in anything he does. But, with that, let's dive deeper into the movie. So, do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes, I do. In
1: 1980, Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, is a teenager living with his meek father, George, played by Crispin Glover and his depressed, strict mother, Lorraine, played by Leah Thompson. He is friends and the working assistant for Dr. Emmett Brown, Doc Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd. When Doc Brown shows Marty that he has invented a time machine, events spin out of control as Marty finds himself suddenly in 1955 dealing with his teenage parents and his father's tormentor, Biff Thomas F. Wilson. He must figure out how to get back to the future without disrupting the time
0: continuum thank you cast for this movie robert zemeckis as director michael j fox as marty mcfly christopher lloyd as Emmett doc brown leah thompson as lorraine baines mcfly crispin glover as george mcfly thomas f wilson as biff tannen james tolkien portrays hill valley high school principal strickland claudia wells as jennifer parker Mark McClure as Dave McFly, and Wendy Jo Sperber as Linda McFly. Recognition for this film, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Original Song for Power of Love, and Sound Mixing. It won for Best Sound Effects. It was the 10th Best Sci-Fi Movie for AFI's 10 out of 10 categories under the Sci-Fi category. It was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2007. Did you know? The rights to the film and its sequels are owned by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. In a 2015 interview, Zemeckis maintained that no reboot or remake of the film would be authorized during his or Gale's lifetime. Did you know? The inspiration for the film largely stems from Bob Gale discovering his father's high school yearbook and wondering whether he would have been friends with his father as a teenager. Gale also said that if he had the chance to go back in time, he would really go back and see if they would have been friends. I would not want to do that. Did you know? (laughs) Michael J. Fox had always been the first choice for Marty, but he was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts with his work on Family Ties. As Family Ties co-star Meredith Baxter was pregnant at the time, Fox was carrying a lot more of the show than usual. The show's producer, Gary David Goldberg, simply couldn't afford to let Fox go. Zemeckis and Gale then cast Eric Stoltz as Marty based on his performance in Mask from 1985. After six weeks of filming, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale felt that Stoltz wasn't right for the part, and Stoltz agreed. By this stage, Baxter was fully on the show, and Goldberg agreed to let Fox go off to make the film. Fox worked out a schedule to fulfill his commitment to both projects. Every day during production, he drove straight to the movie set after taping of the show was finished every day and averaged about five hours of sleep. The bulk of the production was filmed from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., with the daylight scenes filmed on weekends. Reshooting Stoltz's scenes added $3 million to the budget. Did you know? In 2010, during a cast reunion, Michael J. Fox said that strangers still call him McFly constantly. Fox said that the most remarkable instance was when he was in a remote jungle in the South Asian country Bhutan, located between China and India in the eastern Himalayas. A group of Buddhist monks passed him and one of them looked at Fox and said, Marty McFly! Did you know? <laughs> Writers Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis actually received a fan letter from John DeLorean after the film's release, thanking them for immortalizing his car. Did you know? Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer Parker in Back to the Future, gave her role up to Elizabeth Shue for Back to the Future Part 2 and Back to the Future Part 3 when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. Did you know? Universal Pictures had... Sid Sheinberg did not like the title Back to the Future, insisting that nobody would see a movie with future in the title. In a memo to Robert Zemeckis, he said that the title should be changed to Spaceman from Pluto, tying in with Marty as alien jokes in the film, and also suggested further changes like replacing the, quote, I'm Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan line with the, quote, I am a spaceman from Pluto. Sheinberg was persuaded to change his mind by a response memo from Steven Spielberg which thanked him for sending a wonderful, quote, joke memo and that everyone got a kick out of. Scheinberg, too proud to admit he was serious, gave in to letting the film retain its title. <laughs> what a great tactic. I gotta remember that one. I figured you'd like that one.
1: All right, so... By the way, if you did not know, they reused a lot of the scenes that and, and kind of edited out Eric Stoltz. Like the scene in the cafeteria with... Uh, Biff, you can catch like little glimpses of what would have been Eric Stoltz as opposed to uh, Michael J. Fox because they were trying to save as much of the film as they could.
0: All right, so we're going to jump right into the rubric then. If you want our nominations for, well, I guess at least mine, for Best Performance, Scenes, Quotes, all of the other stuff that we usually fill in at this point, uh, I would suggest going back to episode 16, it is somewhat roughly cut. Uh, I did edit it at the time, and it's not probably my best work, but we've developed a show since then. But since we're revisiting the episode, I don't think you need to listen through that a second time. So when we do these revisits, I think we're just going to focus on the rubric itself. So can, originally, can I give my at least my three real quickly? If you would like. Sure.
1: Uh, Michael J. Fox, Best Performance, Hands Down. He makes the film. Secondary performance, Crispin Glover. It's the only time I've actually seen Crispin Glover do anything that seemed like it was worth watching. Even in this, I think he was still overly creepy for no good reason. <laughs> he 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 is creepy and such. And then most charismatic,
0: Huey Lewis in the News. It's an interesting nominee. I don't think we've ever gone with a, a singer or a musician before for it. The song is
1: just, it's phenomenal. It's probably Huey Lewis's best song, at least in my
0: opinion. I know you're referring to Power of Love. I actually think Back in Time is a better song.
1: Which is a good song, but I like, yeah.
0: Oh, I I just like the vibe of that. But, alright. So, we're gonna skip over the rest of it, but... We're going to give everybody the benefit of perspective, so you won't have to look this up on your own. I'm going to give the original score we had down, and then we'll just kind of go from there. So the original Legacy score for this one was a 9.75. Do you want to go first, or would you like me to start? Oh, I will start.
1: Okay, I looked at this, and I thought about the Legacy. I love the film, but I've never seen the sequels. I just didn't have any real interest in seeing the sequels. And uh, I I suppose at some point in time I should, because maybe they're better than I thought. I just thought this was such a good film by itself. I don't know if I want to watch a sequel that will kind of undercut the enjoyment of this, but just in talking to people, because I do that periodically around the office or friends and such as talk about films before we record, trying to get an idea of how other people might perceive it. I think it's lost some of its luster. It's not a film that everybody remembers. If you say Back to the Future, oh, yeah, I love that film. But if you ask them, name 100 films from the uh, uh, 1980s that you liked, uh, I think this might come in around 85, 90, because people don't remember it now. It wasn't that impactful. It was fun.
0: It was entertaining. It was well
1: done compared to some of the other films.
0: All right. Now that we've heard from the person who lived in the 80s and hated the 80s, let's <laughs> well, move yeah. to my, my thoughts on it.
1: I gave it a seven, by the way.
0: I think you're grossly overstating it and being kind of hot takey about the 85 area. No, this is going to come up in somebody's 20s. I don't know if it'll come inside the top 10 for a few people it might, but there were a lot of kids that just loved this movie. And I still think it, the fact that it just popped out of the nowhere and I've seen it multiple times on Oscar presentations when they've asked certain actors or people to just like talk about a film and they're playing up the nostalgia factor. Like, I want to say it was maybe three or four, the last three or four years, Seth Rogen did a a small clip of this being like the thing that got him into movies and he was enchanted by. I don't know if it's going to be the tip of everybody's spear when it comes to asking the question, what are your most fond movies of the 80s? You're probably going to get a Pretty in Pink or a Breakfast Club or a Ferris Bueller. You'll get a Top Gun here and there, but this movie is going to come up at some point. Ghostbusters is probably in there, but it's like one of those, I want to say it's at least a top 30 memorable movie of the 80s. So I I think the legacy, I I will agree with you in part. I think it's waned because it's staying power isn't there. I think the impact in the moment, again, for this film was a little bit bigger than the legacy overall. And there are parts that are going for it, but as far as just staying at near the top of the mountain, I didn't have it quite in that that sense. So uh, as we've been doing lately, I'm going to split this up. I think it still has some power for the audience. I had a four for the audience overall. I think it has weaned a bit, as I mentioned before. But you do see some of the fingerprints in a lot of things. And frankly, Zemeckis had a meal ticket for as long as he probably wanted. It's probably carried to making whatever movie he's wanted to for the last 20 years, if he's even still making movies. I don't remember a film of his in the last 10. I think it's one of the sole reasons people remember Michael J. Fox. They more, more than anything, people probably remember him for this than they do any other thing that he's ever done. Yes, you may have watched Family Ties. Yes, you may have watched Spin City. But I can't think, unless it was a guest appearance here or there where he had some really good cameos that he was ever quite as popular as he was for doing this series of movies. You you talk about the DeLorean being iconic. If you even mention it, it's automatically associated with this movie and time machines. The time travel elements. How many different movies, sci-fi or otherwise, haven't used time travel as an element, and they basically rip the rules of time travel from this movie? There is only maybe one or two that I can think of offhand that directly fly in contradiction to how they depict time travel and the makeup of uh, how supposedly uh, fragile time is. You get that in comic books, you get that in sci-fi fantasy movies all the time, from everything from The Avengers to I think like even something like The Butterfly Effect, which was a weird Ashton Kutcher movie from the mid-2000s. You have shows like Rick and Morty that basically are ripping off the structure Of the Doc Brown-Marty relationship in order to do, I wouldn't say it's like a hugely popular, but it's kind of one of those niche shows that a lot of people that are, I guess, influencers really love. So, and like I said, it did inspire a generation of young filmmakers. There are a lot of people that point to movies like this as the onus for why they loved movies. I I think you could point to a lot of movies from around this time, Raiders, E.T., Star Wars, kind of that grouping probably between about 75 with Jaws up through maybe the mid-90s, maybe late 90s, as to uh, groups of films that have kind of influenced the current generation of filmmakers, or at least the ones that are all in power at the moment. So I do think this has a cultural impact. Like I said, I have a four for the audience. I had a 3.5 for the industry because I think it's still bigger for the audience than it is for the industry as a whole. Michael J. Fox is uh, obviously in kind of a semi-retirement of sorts, unfortunately. Robert Zemeckis, like I said, I don't remember anything he's done for a long time. And while this does have elements in other stories and things, I don't think it's ever mentioned on any of these great movie lists. I mean, it was on that one AFI list, but... It's probably, what, in the top 300 of greatest movie American movies, if you ask, like, any of the critics. So I I went with a 3.5. So mine's only about a half point off of yours. So that's going to end at a 7.25 for us, or between us, my 7.5 and your 7, which is grossly different from 9.75. Yeah. All right, so then the original Impact Significance score was a 9.17. I do think this was... Probably the biggest film of 1985, not just from a box score, but a cultural impact. I can't think of any other movie that would have rivaled this just straight up. It it was a huge hit. It's got international pull all over the place. The soundtrack alone got up to number 12, and that was partly due to Power of Love being, I think it was at number one at one point or another. So I gave it a five for the audience at the time. I I I just think this was a big movie, but I ended up with three point five for the industry again, just simply because it wasn't as big. I mean, it was a big eighties movie when you had original content, tentpole films. It had spawned a couple of sequels, another teen-related movie, made Michael J. Fox a star. But like, you know, it's not like everybody from this movie went on to be huge stars. Christopher Lloyd probably did more for creating and producing entertainment than he ever did in starring in anything. And unfortunately, Michael J. Fox's career was kind of cut short. So I ended up at an 8.5 overall. Well, Christopher
1: Lloyd had originally started primarily in producing and production because David Lloyd was his brother. And David Lloyd had been been the creator of Taxi or co-creator of Taxi and then Cheers and uh, several other shows. And so Christopher Lloyd had that part on taxi playing Reverend Jim that kind of made him do a little bit more in acting and playing that goofy character type. So yeah, as far as impact and significance I had is, is having lived through this, there were other movies that were out that were it was a big it was a big hit. I'll admit that, but I, I don't know offhand. If it was by far the biggest hit, I was just. Oh, I did the box
0: office numbers. The only other film that could compete with it, I think, out of the twelve weeks of its release, it spent time at number one in ten of them. It was number one in its initial week. It was not Mm -hmm. for week number two, and then came back around. Like it had some up and down moments, but like kind of hovered around for a long time. And that's kind of the story of a lot of movies of the eighties, where. I think the only thing that was directly competing that summer for top of the box office was Rambo part two. (sighs) So, like, that's what you're competing with. Like, 1985,
1: generally. No, 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 no. Rambo didn't come out in 85. Rambo First Blood came out in 1987 because I went to the theater. Well, maybe you're right now that I'm thinking about it. But also other films that came out that year. Brewster's Millions, St. Almost
0: Fire, But flesh, none of them were as Silverado. Big. Yeah, they didn't have the huge impact.
1: Command no, Box.
0: The box office, and Silverado's 84. It might have been released, but it was primarily showing in 85. Well, e- even so, this was, as far as box office wise, the biggest film of that year. Yeah. Because really, that was a down year for films. 86 produced some stuff past that. And I I don't want to, like, quibble on it too much, but just from basic gross receipts, this is by far the best, or the biggest movie of that
1: year. Yeah, no, 85 produced, probably one of the more boring, best picture winners of all time, out of Africa. Yep. I've managed to get through about 45 minutes of it since 1985. I've tried three different times and went, uh, There's got to be a wall with paint that would be more entertaining.
0: It does get better in about hour two, but then by the time you're in uh, (laughs) hour three, (laughs) it's just like, uh, okay, can we be done? (sighs) I think most people rightly feel that year should have been won by the color purple. And that was, I think, number four for overall box office that year. Well, of course. So just a note of context for where we were in films in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that some of the biggest movies also were Best Picture winners, or yeah, at I know. least nominated for Best Could, Picture. Can, really can, we, can we take a moment and just revel in that thought? Well, do you really want Avengers Endgame up for Best Picture? No. I thought it should have been, personally, but... I mean, it was kind of an achievement when Black Panther was. Yeah, well, alright. Alright, novelty. Did you give your score on impact significance? Because I don't remember you giving oh, a score. Well, maybe I didn't.
1: I went with an eight because um, having lived through this period, it did have a huge impact. It was a huge film. And I think everybody talked about seeing it. And everybody, when they saw it, was interested in going and seeing the sequel. I just never bothered. <laughs> the sequels came out about when I was, yeah, I was in law school and, uh, That, that in and of itself was kind of like bloodletting. And so there was a lot of things I just didn't do during those three years, like have a life, have fun. Yeah. Anyway. But, uh, so I went with an eight for that reason. Two sequels were spawned. Christopher Lloyd, who I thought was just phenomenal on taxi, became kind of well-known and was kind of a popular character. Michael J. Fox was, uh, rather or was really
0: reached his peak as you said and so that's why i went with an eight so that's 8.25 between us uh the math has been pretty easy when it's only two of us novelty the original score was an eight Uh, i'm gonna actually hold on to mine because mine might be a little surprising you go ahead Uh, i had a
1: 7.5 there were other films that were Teen-based. There were other films that were time travel. The
0: novelty was combining the two. Other than the time machine based on the HG Wells book, what other movies were based on time travel?
1: Well, you just indicated the biggest aspect of it, but that—that's just me.
0: I, you know, fine. You don't agree with it, fine. No, disagreed I'm. It. I'm. I am i i did not say I. I agreed or disagreed. I'm asking. If you're going to say that there were time travel movies, there's only one that I can think of. It's not like this was a genre to itself as it's almost kind of become posts back to the future. I, I honestly don't think there's anything like this as an original story. In my appreciation, just looking back on this, and this is probably going to end up being the case for a lot of standalone Original films type of thing where they built a franchise even if they weren't necessarily intending to the concept is unique and by extension then it has been borrowed by a lot of other movies I think the novelty of it is how many people have tried to essentially copy this and like I referenced and before poorly, like hot tub time machine <laughs> Well, but everybody knows what they're getting in a Hot Tub Time Machine. You just have to say the name. And the fact that there have been three Hot Tub Time Machines is just extraordinary. But it's bad on purpose.
1: Yes, I, I did watch the original and uh, I remembered that uh, it took several uh, adult beverages to find that f- film even funny. Oh, I didn't think it was quite that bad, but... yeah okay
0: but like i said it's been borrowed by a lot of other movies books comics etc like we're having a huge time traversal thing going on through the marvel universe right now which has a lot of lead-ins from the back to the future concepts and has to kind of work through that because that's everybody's reference point on time travel so this is kind of a unicorn in its pop cultural standing as an original movie and simply put they just don't make them like this anymore I I can't think of anybody greenlighting a project like this anymore or in the last ten to fifteen years that doesn't have like a wizard involved. <laughs> but I ended up going oddly enough, and I, I think I might be a little too high on this now in retrospect, but I'm gonna end up with it anyway, with a nine point five. So your seven point five and my nine point five averages out to an eight point five. Again. Wow, you're so good with the math. I know. When it's two of us, it it really does make the math easier. All right. So original classicness score on this one was a 7.5. You're the master of nuance. This is your category. Go. Well,
1: (laughs) other than the uh, stereotype, which is that most everybody's mom was somehow a little slutty back in the (laughs) fifties, which, uh, that's the only thing I could find that lacked classicness. Ooh. Well, also, I would point out there was only one African-American
0: in the entire film.
1: And, um, okay, well, I
0: don't know. I don't know what you're I thought out. for sure you would have, like, pummeled this apart. But go ahead and give your score. I'm sorry. Pummeled this apart? Oh, yeah. Okay, well. There are some very troubling things that I pulled out of this one.
1: Well, all right. I I guess I'm at a loss. I'm curious as to what you're talking about. You want to give a score, though, first? Yeah, I went with, because it's a period piece, which tends to hold up classicness more, I went with an 8. Wow.
0: Yeah, we're very different. I'm going to lead off with my score, just so you understand. 3.5. Wow, okay. Why? Yeah. So I think that's going to end up at a 6.5 overall, but... Well, let, er, let me hear your reasoning. Let's just start with what I think is probably the biggest problem of this movie. There's a rape scene. There's a rape scene in a kid's movie. Yeah. He's quite literally, like, forcing himself on her during the middle of the movie. How does not every kid that's, like, around 10 not turn to their parents and, Daddy, what is he doing? it's going to be really hard to explain exactly all of that in a modern sense. Like, I don't know how many kids are seeing this movie anymore, but boy, that just does not sit well. Number two, his parents are supposed to meet because Crispin Glover falls out of a tree after being a peeping Tom on his mom. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) If that was the story of how my parents met, Boy, would that not sit well. Like, that's just so awkward and wrong. Not to mention the gross Oedipus complex of this whole thing with his mom constantly hitting on him and trying to essentially force herself by the end of it on him. Like, she goes in. And we often say that, you know, only men are the the culprits in this. No, like, she went after him. And that's not great either. The stereotype of black musicians smoking grass. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. How about another white guy stealing and getting credit for black music? (laughs) Now, I will say that parts of this are reflecting attitudes of the 80s and 50s, but still, we've, or at least I've, knocked down other movies for very similar things, and all things being equal, I think it's not only fair that this is problematic now i think in another 10 to 20 years we may not put it in the like classic movies just because it's gonna age some of that stuff incredibly horribly (laughs) but so it was
1: the 50s and it heightens your sensitivity because in part
0: your parents didn't meet by me falling out of a tree no you just tried to go after an engaged woman well we met in church how much how more you met in a church, not at church. Well, we met yeah That is that is a distinction with a difference. It was the You were not the holier than thou picture that my mother liked to paint while I was still in uh grade school and middle school.
1: I was a very
0: good boy. Most of the time. Anyway, so are you going to then stick with your eight? I'll drop it down to a six. Okay, so then that is 4.75 between us, I believe. You're, or it's 3.5 for me and a 6 for you. Yeah, 4.75. Sorry, I'm I'm even doing it in my head this week. That's wow. how easy the math is. All right, rewatchability score. Now, you got to know that this was the byproduct of fans of the movie, but 9.625. <laughs> uh, okay. I have not
1: seen it in at least 15 years, and that was okay. It, it's, it's much more enjoyable when I, I can remember bits and pieces of the sequence and what was going on and how certain things happened, but I think the film is much more enjoyable when you lose the continuity of seeing it on a regular basis. If I had to watch this like every three months, I'd hate it. I mean, it would get so contrived and silly that it would not. This is one that it's got rewatchability, but it can't be very often. So that's why if I start with a five, I didn't go up after that. I went with a seven. If it's on, I'll watch it. If it's part of it, you know, like I'm going to watch the last half of it because I'm flipping around and find it. Yeah, okay.
0: So to that extent, that's where I went with rewatchability. What was your score then? Seven. Okay, that's what I thought. That's where I ended up as well. I I went with a seven. This fits in about that seven category. I enjoy the film. It's easily rewatchable for me. I think I've probably seen it now three or four times in the last year. I almost could knock it a half a point because AK-47s are designed not to fucking jam, which is a key plot point in the movie. But okay, sure. Let's just move past that.
1: Hey, um, if you'd like,
0: I can do the math. Seven. Thanks. I do look past some of the classicness issues because I don't think it's the, the main portion of this, but uh, I can see why certain people might knock it in the future and have problems with its rewatchability. I think it's only going to have cultural staying power with people with their initial impression of how it was first seen. And I, I think that's the only thing that's going to sustain it. As we kind of limp on, This is not going to have the same power that Top Gun, which is now getting a sequel 30 years later, or something like uh, Ghostbusters, which is also getting another sequel or a reboot of sorts, is going to have as far as films of the 80s that are really something to sink your teeth into.
1: When we're talking classicness, let me just point this out, okay? And I agree that the current status is the correct one, but I've pointed out, That now, if an 18-year-old male has sex with a 14-year-old female, he's a felon. I'm a 57-year-old man. When I was 18, if an 18-year-old man had sex with a 14-year-old, he was a stud. No, I'm talking about, you know, that that was not uncommon in my age group for that level of differentiation in age. And uh, I mean, it was regular that senior guys were dating freshmen and it it slowly evolved into a point where it became very inappropriate. I think there's a certain aspect we didn't understand the impact and significance on females in general and the pressure associated with that in those situations and the harm that it ultimately caused. And I think we're correct on our position now. I'm just telling you from my point of view of having lived through this whole time frame, the attitudes have changed substantially. So when you're doing
0: a period piece, that's kind of what took place. Understood. So then the new audio, or excuse me, the original audience score when we only used Rotten Tomatoes was a 94%. Uh, I looked up and now that we're using at least two scorings uh, for the audience score. Google added a 95%. Rotten Tomatoes was still 94. So that's a 9.45, uh, an extra 0.05 uh, in its favor. Uh, the original score on this was a 53.45, which had earned it number four on our current list, but it is now dropped with our added total scores to 45.2, shaving off a in total points, which drops it from number four down to number 46. (laughs) Are you satisfied? Yes. Well, let me just give you context. Some of the movies surrounding it. Others in the 45 point category are Pillow Talk, Anchorman, Bull Durham, Seven Samurai, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Slumdog Million. I think we got it right. I think so, too. It doesn't look nearly as glaring. I think it's a good movie. I don't know if I would classify it as one of the greats. I understand why certain people might. But now that it's kind of in our waiting on this, um, we uh, can kind of take it off. So I guess that's one other aspect of this revisit episode that we should mention. When we revisit an episode, the original score will no longer exist. We will Give the revisit score as the official on the full list in the show notes, but I will put an asterisk where there was an original score and we changed it. So that will be listed at the bottom of the page, just in case, because I I don't. I want the continuity to be there. If somebody's just exploring the show and goes and listens to episode sixteen first, and then wonders why it's not that high on the list, I, I don't want you to be confused. So. all right, with that, before we get to any final thoughts for the week, Dad, do we have anybody to remember this week? We do, and uh, a little preface. He did several films as, uh,
1: as a character actor, but it's uh, Charlie Robinson. But for me, who grew up in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, um, that was another show that was extremely popular, Night Court, with Harry Anderson John Larroquette, but Charlie Robinson played the bailiff, Mac, and uh, he passed this this week. He was 75. He had uh, complications due to cancer. He did uh, some films in the 70s, Sugar Hill and The Black Gestapo, which were, again, he played more of a character actor, not big name films. But that film that or that uh, TV show really made him uh, an iconic figure. And for those of us who are uh, interested in that, by the way, um, for anybody who's interested, Night Court apparently is in uh, the process of a reboot. Harry Anderson passed away due to cancer years ago. But uh, John Larroquette is still alive, and apparently he's going to be participating in the reboot. The reboot is going to be uh, supposedly Harry Anderson, who was... Judge Harry Stone's daughter. She's going to be appointed to sit on his bench in night court. And so they're going to kind of redo that uh, show. For those of you who are huge um, Mel Brooks fans and uh, Carl Reiner fans, the, the, the first bailiff in the show night court was played by Salma Diamond. She was one of the original writers on your show of shows with Sid Caesar And the character of Sally Rogers in the Dick Van Dyke show is based on Selma Diamond uh, based on Carl Reiner's adaptation
0: for his own TV show. Unfortunately, I don't see that night court is streaming anywhere at the moment that you don't have to rent it or buy it um, at the moment where we're sitting in July, 2021. But uh, we certainly fondly remember him, at least uh, those of us that watch the show, If you want to find his work, just uh, search him out. I'm sure his IMDb page has plenty to uh, let everybody watch, but quick moment of silence in his memory. All right. uh, That wraps up the week. Any closing thoughts on episode 74? (laughs) Uh, Every
1: time we do this and I hear how many we've done, I always remember, um, and I'm paraphrasing the quote, sometimes the uh, hardest part of success is just showing up. Just the fact that we've plowed through and done 74 episodes and hope that people are enjoying the show, that uh, they will recommend it to others, that they are uh, using our suggestions and our comments uh, to find movies that they may... Enjoy watching with their friends and family. And uh, 74 is a big number. Next week, Wizard of Oz. And I will uh, enjoy watching that film again. It's been a while since
0: I've watched it. I'm certainly not going to belabor any points this week, but I I would also agree that 74 seems like a lot. But at the same time, I feel like with as long as we've been doing this, so almost a year and a half, it feels like we should be farther ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. Next week, I mean, with Wizard of Oz, that's going to be technically our first 1930s film. So we will have hit every decade since 1930 at that point. And I'm sure we're going to have some 20s films and maybe even some teens at some point. We we do have to discuss Birth of a Nation at some point. I. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is there, like, a lost episode we could do? I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'm I know. not looking forward to that one, but...
1: Well, uh, we yeah. may get to another 1930s episode here, Matt. Too, oh, we'll, we'll get we, to we, several at some point. Yeah, we're we're going to do a Hitchcock month this fall,
0: and I'm still trying none to None of the ones you picked or that are on the list for that month are from the uh, 30s yet. Well, I may switch in one.
1: The first Hitchcock film I ever saw was The 39 Steps. It was one of his last British films. And that's what really hooked me on Hitchcock. And I'm thinking, maybe that's the one we should put on the list.
0: Some of the lesser-known ones, I think we would be better served, maybe providing as bonus content at some point. Just my thought. Uh, all
1: right. All right.
0: I think the four that we have picked out are pretty notable. So with the exception being Shadow of a Doubt, I don't know how many people know that one, but I thought that was a good tie-in for uh, what's going to be our last one, the Halloween episode that month. We've also got our James Bond month coming up. We're, in addition to doing our revisit of Raiders, going to be doing both Temple of Doom and The Last Crusade after that. So we're going to have the back-to-back-to-back Indiana Jones weeks. Um, We have a few gaps filled in between there that uh, we're still doing a little bit of scheduling. We have guests after the Wizard of Oz episode. We're doing our Jaws revisit, and we're also uh, welcoming on a guest for the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly which I know that both of us have wanted to do for some time. We've kind of avoided Westerns for most of this year so far because I think we did quite a few of them last year. But we're going to definitely dip our toe back in at some point with a lot more of those. There's a lot to pick from. So we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I know we have some plans as we kind of go along into the final stage of the year. And uh, realistically, we have all of our stuff planned out through, I think, New Year's at this point in time. Unless a new guest pops up that has a request or not, I'm pretty sure that's uh, what we've got going on. So just a lot to look forward to and glad that uh, we can continue doing this each and every week. Little things that may be available in the future for those who listen.
1: I may actually be looking at putting together some bling.
0: Some bling?
1: Yes. Yes. What, are we going to be offering Stanley rubric chains? I was figuring maybe we could get hats or t-shirts.
0: I see. We might have to get a few different logos beyond what the the first one is. Mm. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week we will be celebrating our seventy-fifth episode with another of the big films on the list, The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Bert Lair. You won't want to miss that one, so check out RealGood.com or the RealGood app to find where the movie is streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is next edited and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. E.